Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined today by my good friend Travis Murdoch, who is no longer a fellow in gastroenterology, but now is a full-fledged gastroenterologist at the University of Calgary. Hey, Travis, how's it going? It's going good. Better than it was when I was writing my real college exam, that's for sure. You sound relaxed and confident, and I have to say, maybe a little bit richer. <laughs> my life has definitely felt richer. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, Travis and I are thrilled to be hosted, as always, online at Healthy Debate, where you can find all of the materials that we discussed today, healthydebate.ca. So Travis and I are talking about two articles today. Travis is going to talk about a biological marker that predicts asthma responsiveness to steroids. Uh, So really interesting work. And then I'm going to be talking about patient perceptions of interventions for coronary artery disease. So Travis, why don't you kick us off and tell me about some pie-in-the-sky science as you always do. Thanks, Amol. Uh, Well, this is right now a bit pie in the sky, but I think it's something that may come to the clinic soon. So this is an interesting personalized medicine paper that was published on September 15th in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. And what it is, is an interesting personalized medicine paper, as I mentioned, that demonstrates the utility of interleukin-25, and interleukins are the hormones or cytokines of the immune system, as a way to guide asthma treatment. So in this study, they examined bronchoscopy brushings, that is to say, brushings taken after you put a camera down into the lungs, for interleukin-25 expression, as well as uh, plasma levels of interleukin-25, both in patients with asthma, and they had uh, 43 of these patients, as well as healthy controls. Now, the patients with asthma underwent pulmonary function testing. They were then treated with an inhaled corticosteroid, which is a common therapy for asthma, for eight weeks, twice daily. And then they underwent repeat pulmonary function testing at week four and eight. What they found is that, number one, interleukin-25 was increased in only a subset of asthma patients, actually 21 of the 43, so about half. They demonstrate that both the bronchial interleukin-25 expression as well as plasma levels could be used to stratify patients in a way that predicted their responsiveness to inhaled corticosteroids. That is to say, patients in the high group had about a 35% improvement in their lung function, about a 40% improvement in their hyper-responsiveness of their airways at week eight, versus about 10% in the low group. It sounds like a really interesting study, Travis. Can you tell me a little bit about the patients that they studied? And maybe you can tell me a little bit about the severity of their asthma. You mentioned a 30 or 40% relative improvement. I assume that's a relative improvement. So maybe you can tell me what their baseline is so we can interpret that. Sure. So these were patients largely in their 30s. Uh, if you look at their their baseline characteristics, they had mild asthma. So FEV1 or forced expiratory volume over one second is a measure that we use for that. And uh, th- their FEV1 was about 85% predicted. It wasn't different between patients in the interleukin-25 high or low group. Okay, interesting. So, Travis, I'm a simple clinician. Tell me what IL-25 does. Sure. So, IL-25 is a hormone of the immune system, as I mentioned, which is called the cytokine. And most models uh, have shown that it's necessary for uh, airway inflammation, 
as well as uh, airway hyper-responsiveness, so the tightening down of the airways that we see clinically in patients with asthma. It is a cytokine that is associated with a, a particular subset of T-cells that, um, again, these, this subset of T-cells called Th2 cells. Uh, patients who have uh, more Th2 cells are known to respond better to inhaled corticosteroids. So it's probably one of the sort of um, the on-the-ground effectors that, uh, that, that carries out the bad activities of Th2 cells in this disease. Oh, so do you think then that this suggests that IL-25 actually has a functional role? It's not just a marker, but it's actually part of the disease process then? Yeah, and there's, there is some data suggesting that, um, especially, as I mentioned, in the mouse models. Um, it's sufficient, actually, if, you give, if, if they have IL-25 around. It's, it's really all that they need to get, these, uh, airway inflama- to get airway inflammation or hyper-responsiveness. So it's probably a potential therapeutic target as well, and they're looking at this. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. So you could maybe imagine one day some long-named MAB kind of drug that would be like anti-asthma IMAB that's an IL-25 targeted therapy? Certainly, yeah. I mean, there there's a number of other um, monoclonal antibodies uh, that are being used to treat asthma, uh, but this is, this is one that's probably going to be down the pipeline at some point. All right. Um, so maybe the other thing, and it seems like this is actually what the authors of this paper were getting at in their study design, is suggesting that this might be useful as a diagnostic test. And I guess that's why they looked at a blood level as well as the, the bronchial levels. Right. So one of the things to think about is whether or not you would take uh, each patient with asthma, especially mild asthma, and, and do a bronchoscopy. Now, that's a pretty invasive test. And so they were fortunately able to show that plasma levels uh, were a good surrogate for that. And you know, one of the challenges in asthma therapy is, is choosing which patients will uh, benefit from therapy. And this sort of approach of sort of personalized care or companion diagnostics has been used a lot in cancer, but it's kind of lagged behind in immune diseases. And so I think this is a great example of that uh, potentially coming to fruition in the future. Yeah, really interesting. We did a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago about trying to taper people who have COPD off of inhaled corticosteroids. And so having a, a blood test that could help you stratify who's going to respond would actually be really helpful. Definitely, definitely. I think that that's sort of the main point that the authors are trying to get. So I take it that this is uh, still probably a little bit away from clinical utility. Uh, you know, you'd probably need to validate it in other populations and, you know. Uh... This was a small study, right? It was 43 patients. So it's it's a bit of a pilot, but the data looks really promising. And uh, diagnostics tend to have a, a bit shorter of a time to market from uh, the initial studies. And so I could foresee this coming through as a, as a potential diagnostic. Okay, interesting. So why don't you wrap up and tell us uh, what are the major takeaway points from this study? So this is a, a study of asthma patients showing that uh, there's a subset of patients who have increased interleukin-25 uh, expression levels, and that this subset are those that respond to better to corticosteroid therapy. Perfect. Really interesting. Let's change gears and talk about patient perceptions of interventions for coronary artery disease, so from one very common condition to another. Uh, This was a study published by Qureshi and colleagues in the British Medical Journal, and this study found that patients have a poor understanding of the benefits of percutaneous coronary intervention for stable coronary artery disease. 
So there's been a lot of research about how best to treat patients who have stable coronary disease. So not patients who are actively having a heart attack. And the real question at the heart of that matter is, is it sufficient to put patients on optimal medical therapy? Or should they have an intervention like angioplasty and stenting to prop open their partially clogged arteries? And for the non-clinicians who are listening, we call this intervention uh, PCI for percutaneous coronary intervention. So the evidence from multiple studies shows pretty conclusively that PCI might improve patient symptoms, uh, but it does not prevent heart attacks or reduce death. And the most famous study of that is the COURAGE trial. So there have also been a number of studies showing that patients might not understand that fact. So PCI is probably one of the most common procedures that's performed. There are over a million performed in the United States every year. And about 85% of the PCI procedures that are performed are for people who have stable coronary artery disease, not for people who are having heart attacks. So this study interviewed about 1,000 patients at 10 centers in the United States, and they interviewed patients four to six hours after they had had a PCI procedure. And they asked them questions to determine their perceptions of the urgency and the benefits of the procedure. And so they found that 20% of patients believed that the procedure was emergent. And just to be clear, all of the procedures were elective, so actually none of them were emergent. They also found that the most commonly cited benefits of the procedure were, in fact, wrong. So 90% of patients believed that the procedure extended life. 88% of patients believed that it prevented future heart attacks. And 67% reported that it would improve symptoms. Interestingly, so the only benefit is that it improves symptoms. Only 1% of patients reported improving symptoms as the only benefit of the procedure, meaning that only 1% of patients had an accurate understanding of the benefits of this procedure. So what do you think? Well, I think it's interesting. It's a bit shocking that uh, patients had such poor understanding of uh, the actual benefits of a procedure. Now, I guess in a way you could think about the the whole mechanism of the procedure, right? You're opening up a coronary artery. So people, you know, who think that the tightening in the artery is going to cause them to potentially die will think that opening it up will make them live. But I think it behooves us as clinicians to tell our patients that now. Yeah. And I'll just jump in and say that, you know, it's not just patients who thought that, I mean, and, and sort of think that like clinicians thought that for the longest time. And, you know, your instinct tells that that would be correct. Unfortunately, all our studies have proven that that's not true. Right. Of course. Yeah. So what were the characteristics of the patients and cardiologists that were associated with the patient's perspectives? The patients in the study were 65 years old on average. They were 75% men. They were 93% white. And 93% of them had at least a high school education. So let me just take a second there to pause and reflect that if we're talking about uh, understanding of disease conditions... This is the patient population that should probably ideally be able to understand what's going on. So, you know, you don't have a lot of language barriers. You don't really have a lot of education barriers. You don't have gender barriers and you don't have racial barriers, right? So this is a population that theoretically should be better than 
most other populations in terms of their understanding of the disease. Right. Um, okay, fair enough. But I, I, guess, so I guess the question is which I answer of those characteristics question? were associated with the, the, the outcome of the study, so patient perspective. So the answer is that I didn't answer your question before. Okay, I apologize. <laughs> no worries. Okay, so, so they found that actually not a lot of the patient or doctor characteristics were really associated with patient perceptions. There were a couple of things that they found a patient having angina was the strongest predictor that the patient would believe that the procedure would improve their symptoms. That's not a particularly compelling finding or surprising. They also found that younger patients were more likely to believe that the procedure would extend their life or reduce heart attacks. And they found that less educated patients were more likely to think that this was an emergent procedure. In terms of doctor characteristics, the big caveat here is that they measured relatively few things. So they didn't actually interview the doctors. They didn't have a sense of the doctor's own perceptions of the benefits of the procedure. So that's a real limitation of the study. Really, the only thing that they found is that the older the age of the operator, the more likely it was that patients believed the procedure would extend lives. Uh, not to be ageist, but are there any conclusions we can draw about that or yeah that's or what? A, a good question you know i don't i don't think so i actually don't think we should read too much into it yeah largely because we don't have enough information around that okay now what about the sites i know they looked at 10 different sites were they pretty typical sites similar to you know hospitals in canada for instance yeah they had a range of sites uh they were largely academic or large community hospitals some were private hospitals they unfortunately because of the model didn't have enough sites to really assess whether the variations between the sites were attributed to differences. The one thing that they noted is that only one of the sites consistently provided educational materials to patients about PCI, but they didn't note whether that intervention resulted in any differences in the patient perceptions. So, I mean, this is, this is a really interesting study. It harkens to the fact that uh, perhaps we're not um, telling our clinicians and or patients uh, as much as we should about the, the role of certain procedures. Now, how, how do you think we should use this taking forward? Do you think it's ready to implement changes now? Do we need a perspective study to actually see how those, what changes to make? What, what do you think? I think that we need to interpret this study in light of its limitations. So the major limitations of this study are that, first of all, they did not observe the consent process in which the physicians are supposed to have conversations with patients about the risks and benefits of the procedure and help patients come to an informed decision. And so without having any information about the quality of that process, I think it's really hard to say where the problem exists. The other thing that they didn't do is they only studied patients who already had a procedure. So it's possible that there is a large group of patients, a larger group of patients, who were adequately informed about the procedure and chose not to have the procedure and really we're only seeing the subset of patients who did have the procedure. Do you think that there's sort of implicit assumptions about the value of PCI in stable coronary disease that are made by this uh, study? Yeah, let me just finish the previous slide, which was that, you know, the fact that they only interviewed people who had the procedure does not change the main central finding of this paper, which is that the vast majority of people who choose to have this procedure are misinformed about its benefits. But as to this implicit assumption about sort of the merits of, of PCI, you know, I, what I would want to just do is make the point that we're not commenting on whether it was appropriate for those patients to have PCI or not. And, you know, the jury is still, I think, out on this one in terms of 
We know that it doesn't prolong people's lives and we know that it doesn't reduce heart attacks, but it does improve quality of life and that could be a meaningful outcome. And in fact, there's some evidence to suggest it might even be a cost-effective intervention if you look at quality adjusted life years as your outcome. So let's not comment on whether it was appropriate or not, but let's focus on the point that whether or not the decision was made appropriately, you could argue that the patients making this decision were misinformed or did not understand the decision that they were making. Uh, great study. So what, what should we do about it? Yeah, so I think, you know, we, there's a need to examine interventions that might improve the consent process, that might introduce decision aids or materials to help patients come to a shared decision. Sort of, this is a central problem in healthcare today, which is how do we communicate knowledge that is so complicated that even clinicians have a hard time understanding it? How do we help patients understand it in a way that allows them to make decisions uh, that really reflect their own values? So this is just another great example of the, the need for this kind of research. And so to summarize, I think the major takeaway point from this study is that the vast majority of people who undergo elective PCI are misinformed about its potential benefits. All right, Travis. Now comes the fun stuff. So tell me something in our good stuff segment that is short and sweet from the world of medicine. Oh, and that is a very unfortunate pun. This is a, my good stuff segment today is a very interesting developing story on the role of sugar substitutes and gut microbes. You forced me into a pun that I didn't even intend to walk into. I know, I know. But uh, anyway, so this study looked at, at uh, it was published in Nature um, in September, and essentially it was looking at sugar substitutes and gut microbes in the metabolic syndrome. So it was a group of Israel that fed mice sugar substitutes and then found uh, over, over a number of weeks, and they found that these mice developed glucose intolerance after 11 weeks. Now, the kicker is that they were actually able to transfer the glucose intolerance to other mice by transplanting the feces from the glucose intolerance mice into mice who'd been raised in a sterile environment. So suggesting that the microbes were actually the reason that, that the sugar substitutes were bad for the animal. They, they then looked at people. So they recruited seven volunteers who didn't use artificial sweeteners. And these were all lean people. And they gave them a week of maximal dose artificial sweetener. That must have been terrible. Uh, and actually, four of these patients developed glucose intolerance. And, and they, they looked at the gut microbiome or the microflora in these, these individuals. And they actually had a shift in their microflora towards a composition known to be associated with metabolic disease. It, it provides further evidence that sugar, sugar substitutes may not be very good for us. Fascinating. I think I'm going to have to cut out all the... Diet cola. Yeah, I know. It's unfortunate. You can't win either way, can you? No, but is there then, is an implication of this study that there is a gut microbiome that is associated with weight loss and you might have like a fecal transplant for weight loss intervention? Yeah, so there was actually a really prominent study back, published back in 2006 in Nature linking the gut microbiome to obesity. And so this has been a sort of developing story over a number of years. There was another one showing um, uh, last year showing that starvation, different types of starvation can actually are associated with micro microflora. So, um, you know, we're more than just uh, ourselves. Our, our gut microbiome seems to be important for our health. Our traveling companions, as it were. Okay, let's move on. So my good stuff is something that I think also you'll like. 
So it's from a paper that was published in Cell Transplantation. And just in case you were worried that I regularly read the journal Cell Transplantation, (laughs) I actually encountered this on a video on BBC.com. So this is the story of a 38-year-old man who was stabbed in the back and sustained a traumatic, complete transection of his spinal cord at the thoracic level in his mid-back. 21 months after the injury, he had symptoms of complete spinal cord injury, meaning that there was no nerves connecting his upper spinal cord and his brain to the lower half of his body. So what these doctors from Poland did is that they removed one of his olfactory bulbs, the nerves associated with the sense of smell, and they grew them in culture. They then transplanted those cells into the patient's spinal cord in the upper and lower stumps of the spinal cord. They took one of the patient's own nerves, the sural nerve, and made a bridge that bridged the 8 millimeter gap between his two spinal cord segments that would theoretically form a conduit that these olfactory cells uh, could grow between and connect his spinal cord. He then underwent an intense rehabilitation program, and they found that this was actually a moderately effective treatment where he had improved trunk stability, he had partial recovery of the voluntary movements of his lower extremities, increase in the muscle mass of his left thigh, and partial recovery of his sensation, to the point where he's able to walk to some extent with significant amounts of support. And so it's a, it's a modest recovery, but at the same time, compare that to the previous state, which is complete hopelessness of recovery. Yeah, wow. Interesting. So, yeah, totally interesting. All right. That's good stuff for this week. Travis, a pleasure to talk to you as always. And to you. I hope to see you soon. 